Okay, we have two readings this morning. The first is in Deuteronomy. Please rise at the reading of God's word. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 to 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 14, The first 11 verses. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. Thank you, Doug. Thankful for you and Elise, your service as a teaching elder, and little known underestimated fact, the chief architect of the church bylaws, the the Jefferson of Providence Church, only real believer could... Well, verse 11 this week reminded me of a story. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, who was not, he was not a humble man. At one point, he was being sued by one of his clients, and so right before the trial, his lawyer, you know, came down and said, now, Frank, when you take the stand, you've really got to be modest. You've got to come off as humble, or this thing, you know, it's all going to be a huge disaster. Frank Lloyd Wright says, I got it, I got it. So he takes the stand, and judge says, all right, state your name. And he says, well, I'm Frank Lloyd Wright, and I'm the greatest architect in the world. <laughs> Lawyer hangs his head. It just goes downhill from there. He comes off the stand. Lawyer says, Frank, what happened up there? I told you to be modest. And he said, 
Well, you see, I, I, w- I, I would have been, but I was under oath. <laughs> see, we recognize pride when we see it, and yet pride seems to have certain social advantages that we gravitate towards narcissists, and yet we know that there's something really about humility. And today, our passage, because we really looked at 14, 1 to 6, when we looked at 13, 10 to 17, Uh, is on this short parable where Jesus ends with the exhortation in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now you can call that one-liner maybe something like a principle of reversal, that it uh, moves in a way that we don't anticipate, right? So a person who asserts him or herself will be brought low, but the person who is genuinely humble before God, that, that's the person who's going to be raised up. Now, how prevalent is this in Scripture? It's everywhere. That's why we had a reading from the Hebrew Bible. So from the time of Moses, a solid, you know, 1,450 years before Luke's gospel, what does God say? Well, I I put you out in the desert to be dependent upon manna so that you might remain humble, that it is a feature of God's people to be humble. In Luke's gospel, you don't have to turn to all these, maybe something to look at this week, but chapter 9 and verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. Even looking back uh, from a passage we went through recently, we didn't talk about this verse, but chapter 13 and verse 30, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Flip over to chapter 18. Again, you don't have to flip it, but this week, if you do, you'll notice the exact same thing as chapter 14 and verse 11 and 18 and verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And for good measure, chapter 22 and verse 24. A dispute rose among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the nations exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." The principle of reversal in Luke's gospel and among God's people welcomes us into this space of humility. Now, humility, as we talk about it biblically, uh, anybody who really uh, you know, spends a lot of time in this kind of literature, there's an, there's an obvious move if you just try to make your way an obvious move that all the commentators make is how does humility stack up against the backdrop of all the other literature floating around the time of Luke? And, and this, is, this is what you'll read. So the, the Greeks and the Romans, humble was not something you, you would ever try to be. That the word is there, but it's very clearly a, a low social class. It might be something equivalent to today, like, you know, the poor. Uh, the people on whom there's no favor and they, they've kind of deserved their lot in light. So the very charge to, to be humble would not even make sense to them. It, it is a social class. So it is with God's people. 
It is one of the many legacies of what we would call the Judeo-Christian tradition, that humility is a virtue, that humility is something that can be cultivated, and in fact, it's a very good thing, which is what a virtue is. So right away, we say, one, you know, Christians, Jews and Christians are different in seeing humility not as a social class to be avoided, but as a virtue to be cultivated. But now we get into what I've titled this message, the humility paradox. Because you start to say, well, how, how do we define it? And Jesus here clearly says, you know, be humble, humble yourselves. How do you do it? Now, some, I think, rightly, I don't mean to push back too hardly against this, but some will define it merely in terms of a negation. That is a self-forgetfulness. That humility is close to forgetting yourself. But the problem, as I see it with that, is how do I do that without thinking of myself? Uh, how do I evaluate whether I've forgotten myself to the appropriate degree? You know, you're, you're interviewing for a job and they ask you to self-evaluate and you get to the question, well, how are you at humility? One to five. <laughs> well, what do you answer, right? So I think five, I'm pretty good at it. So you immediately meet a trap on this particular virtue. How can I grow in humility without being conscious of it? Or put differently, does the truly humble person really know they're humble? Now, this has long been observed about this particular virtue, so I'll stack up a few quotes for you from three very different thinkers, but first, C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, you know that wonderful book where this, the senior devil instructs the, the younger devil as to how they can push humans around and move them away from God. So the senior devil tells the junior devil, all virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. <laughs> There's some real truth in that. If I know that I'm good at humility, then I've canceled out what we understand humility to be. Or I think now from an antagonist of the church, someone who really hated God, who because of his dystopian views ends up oddly, I think, being a friend of the church because his outlook is so bleak, which is what you have when you fire God. But Nietzsche, he who, I'm playing on this very line, uh, he who humbles himself wishes to be exalted, is what Nietzsche would say. He's putting his finger on what we would call a false humility. So it'd be something like this. I can't possibly talk to all of you on humility. I mean, who am I? I mean, I'm, I'm a terrible pastor and a terrible speaker, and I just, you know, I could never do it. Say, no, Austin, you're great. You can do it. In other words, you, you by self-deprecation, uh, by faking or feigning a humility, you're in fact hoping that others would recognize you and build you up, that you're looking for a kind of validation uh, in a false humility, which is a very real thing that Nietzsche identifies. Or T.S. Eliot, the poet, humility is the most difficult of all the virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of self. It's that whole idea of achieving. Now, how do we achieve humility? And so, the next couple of moments, we're going to unpack this verse, this repeated principle of reversal. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What moves can we make? And we'll make a couple of moves and then look to the Lord Jesus and how he is the best exemplar of it, and how today we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of this. So firstly, humility, uh, we'll see, involves a grounding. 
And I get here, we get here, by looking uh, firstly at this idea of can a virtue be only a matter of negation? So every other Christian virtue, they take hope, love, faith. There's very clear uh, movements of what you should do. It's not just something you are, a loving person or a hopeful person, but there are things that you can do to put this on display. And I would say humility is the same way. It's not just a negation, but it's, it's a movement towards, and it's a movement towards understanding a real biblical anthropology. And what I mean by that is to say there's a very specific understanding of what a human being is in the, the way the Bible lays it out. But see, unlike every other worldview, you talk to somebody, say, if you, if you really listen to what they're saying about how, you could, you know, how a person changes, how a person grows, that the, the crude sketch is that a person works from the outside in. That if we can set up the right kind of uh, education, uh, the right kind of upbringing, the right kind of finances, that if we can embed any given individual with the right external circumstances, that that's going to make them flourish and be, I guess we'd say, a, a good person. But that's a failed experiment, isn't it? So we look around, we say we have all kinds of that, you know, well off in a lot of those areas, and yet it's not solved the problem of the human condition, i.e. the evening news. The great breakthrough, I think, again, not unlike humility itself, but one of the others is what Jesus says about biblical anthropology. What he would say is, well, actually, a person works from the inside out. That it's not that good works make a person good, but rather a good person, once they've been changed by Jesus, out of the outflow of that change comes the good works. So good works don't make a good person, but a good person is able to do good works. What is a good person? The one who's been regenerated by the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so what you're driving at here with humility is if you think, well, you know, I, I can uh, do, do life on my own with external circumstances, that if I abandon this biblical framework and realize that actually I need my stony heart to be changed, that in and of itself is going to change my perspective on the world, on the world that I occupy. Now, to press this a bit further, you always want to check my etymologies. I've given a lot of false etymologies over the years. I try not to. But this is a true etymology, so the, the root of a word. Where does humility come from? It comes from a Latin root, humus, not to be confused with the Mediterranean dip, hummus. This is humus, one M. And the Latin word, I think here, is quite helpful to us. That it means earth, soil, or ground. That as we search for a definition of humility, I think we could do a lot worse than say it's a, a groundedness in the right thing. And for the Christ follower, it is a groundedness in who God is and who we are. And this is where the whole story of the Bible, one big story of the Bible, is so incredibly beneficial. Every person, you've never met a mere person. Every person is made precious in the image of God, I talked to a brother in our church who recently became a dad at the men's conference. I asked him, I said, well, you were in the room when your boy came out? Yeah. I said, what do you think? He said, yeah, it's a miracle. All the organs are in there. It's a pretty good design, isn't it? It is. Every person's made in God's image. 
This is why every person is capable of such extraordinary things that through one lens you look at people and say, I can't believe that is so amazing that God's given them the kind of mind to do these incredible things. Human beings are remarkable miracles. But we also look out and say at the same time, we, we affirm while every person is, is a miracle that there's so much wrong. It's exactly what the Bible says. Every person's made in God's image, that they have these special endowments that can't be taken away, and yet each of us has gone our own way and we've marred things so deeply and we feel as if we need to be rescued from the outside, which is precisely what God has done in Jesus. The cross of Christ confronts my pride because it exposes me to my fallenness, my sinfulness, my finitude, but I realize in that that I can be redeemed and set right and ultimately reconciled to God and my brothers and sisters. And when you say you're grounded, when a person is grounded in that narrative, that I'm valuable insofar as God has made me, but I'm a fallen creature who's finite and I need lots of help and I need to be forgiven and I have been forgiven, that in and of itself, the grounding in that story is how we make our way into this area called humility, to say it's not about me. I don't often quote Rick Warren, but the purpose-driven life might get my vote for the best first line of a book ever. Do you remember the first line of that book? It's not about you. It's not about you. There's a grounding in this overarching narrative of who I am and who God is. Now, if you, if you say, play at the other, what, what happens if you, if you don't have that grounding, which a lot of our peers do not, say, what, what are you doing here? Well, I suppose I'm the product of random chance. Do you believe in eternity? Well, I guess so, but I have no real evidence of that or any reason to believe in eternity well where does that leave you well i better make meaning for myself i better assert myself i better you know go out and prove to the world that i'm a valuable person and so you can see if you lose your moorings and your groundedness in the biblical narrative no wonder that we tend towards narcissism so as christ followers in god's grand redemption story uh, we see that we are creaturely now, where do we find ourselves culturally? Well, a couple of stories. I guess I'll begin here. What happens when we're not grounded or when we're grounded in the wrong place? There's lots of examples you could draw on. There's one particular one that I was I gravitated towards this week. From my, my years in England, I learned a bit about rugby. Cricket, I cannot understand cricket. I've tried many hours to understand cricket, but rugby, a little bit. And so the years that I had lived there, there was a, a Tom Brady equivalent in the rugby, the English rugby world, a man by the name of Johnny Wilkinson. And Johnny Wilkinson, uh, handsome, rugged, won the 2003 World Cup on a famous kick that he was uh, as big of a star as, as England had. And after they won the World Cup and even into his retirement very recently. He's talked a lot about his life during this time where he was such a, a well-known figure. And I'll read from an interview rather recently, the 2000, uh, I guess this would be 2019 he gave this interview. After the World Cup, the only way my feet could lift off the ground is through my own idea of self-importance. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had that vibe for a while. I was floating well above the ground for a long time in my career because I just figured I was such a successful guy who had it all nailed down. What I found out was that I had very little nailed down. I worried about my reputation and my image, and on and on he goes, very sad. He said, after the night that we 
He does the famous drop kick to win the World Cup. He says, I walked around aimlessly by myself in my hotel, realizing that I was only as good as my last kick. So interesting in those quotes, unbeknownst as I read it this week, that language of grounding and, and being nailed down, isn't it? I tried to ground my life in my own self-importance, in the thing that I was good at, rugby. And I realized there was nothing there. When a person is not grounded, that what we rely on is an assertion of our own self-importance, which is no grounding at all, and it becomes very lonely. And in fact, we all know what happens, that we will be humbled. And again, look at the opportunity the church has Twenge and Campbell, this is in your notes, this sociological book, this is not a Christian book, called The Narcissism Epidemic. So many young people, really from my age, 38 on down, uh, when they're asked, they've done these surveys over the years about ranking your own importance. You know, they'd ask every generation, are you a very important person? Uh, You know, and certain levels of people would say, it's skyrocketed. Something like 80% of young people will, you know, answer the question, I'm a very important person. I know why, because I grew up in a public school and I still remember in the 1990s, every assembly, you know how it started? I'm a special person and my self-esteem is the, the most important thing in my life. And, and that was just rammed home. And so now we have a narcissism epidemic where people are grounding their meaning in their own achievements which is very fragile ground, if it can be called ground at all, knowing we're going to come crashing down. So again, what's the Christian alternative that I'm grounded in this wonderful redemptive narrative that I look to the Lord Jesus Christ for my validation, him and him alone. And I hope, Christian, this is true for you. It is so easy for us to lose our way, to assert ourselves, to rely on our achievements or whatever it might be, instead of saying, you know what, I'm a child of God, he made me, I belong to him, he's redeemed me in Jesus, his, his plan for my life is that I would proclaim him, and in that I am secure, and in that I might remain humble, that the world is, is, is really not about me, which spills into the second point, that humility involves a decentering. and if you could turn now, to, you know, to the parable, what happens in this little parable? Well, Jesus observes an interesting scene, that the guests come into the banquet, and some of the guests scramble for the very best seats. Now, you'd imagine being invited to a wedding and, and uh, you know, you're, you're a distant relative or something or a distant friend, and you go down and you sit at the, the bridal party table. <laughs> you know, somebody says, well, you know, sir, um, this is for the, the bridal party. Actually, you're back at table 37, uh, back in the back. He said, well, that'd be very embarrassing. How much better to say your very old uncle who traveled from California came into town unbeknownst and surprised. You say, oh, you know, Uncle Fred, thank you so much for coming all this distance. We were so glad you could make it. Don't sit back there. Come on down front. It's it's great that you made it. It's so much better to be invited to do things that we want to do than to volunteer for them. That's the practical lesson. But Jesus, as he's observing this, I think is making making the more obvious point that we know, and that is to, when you have any interaction or in any sphere, whether that's an opportunity for me to project my strength and my worth or an opportunity to bless and serve others. You can filter almost every interaction through that. Say, you're in a conversation with somebody, is your mind saying, well, I got to show this guy how important I am, how important my job is. 
have put together my family is? Or is it, Lord, this is a person made in your image, and even in this interaction, I want to think about them, that it's not about me and what I'm trying to do for them, but or what they're going to give to me, but rather what I can do for them. That there's a decentering here. Fellas, this wedding banquet is, is not about you. Think of the other guests and how very embarrassing to think that everything is about you. Best example in the Bible, read Esther 6. There's a guy named Haman, and Haman is a servant of the king, and, and Haman thinks very highly of himself. And the king calls Haman, says, you know, I want to bestow an award on a very important citizen who's, you know, helped us out in these times. And Esther 6.6, 6, Haman says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I can't think of anybody who would be more important than me. And if you remember the story, what happens is that the king gives the honor to Mordecai. And Haman comes unglued. He hurries home mourning in grief with his head covered. In other words, he's brought low. His high estimation of himself, that it must be about me, there can't be any better citizens than me, he's brought low. And Mordecai, the humble man, is raised up. There's a mindset of otherness of a decentering that the whole thing that is happening here is actually part of a much bigger story. It's not about Austin. It's about how I can serve and bless others, even at something that's costly to me. A very good little story that I have no idea is apocryphal because I've, I've heard it said in a bunch of different ways and times, but uh, two very famous 19th century British politicians, Gladstone and Disraeli, there was a woman who had dinner with these men on consecutive nights, and she was asked afterwards, so how was it, uh, you know, having dinner with these two great statesmen? And she says, well, having had dinner with Gladstone, I left convinced that he was the most clever man in all England. But after I had dinner with Disraeli, I left thinking I was the cleverest woman in all England. Say, what's the difference there? Gladstone used the time to show off, to show what an important person he was, how well learned he was. He was a smart guy. But the genius of Disraeli was to operate from the woman's comfort zone, to validate who she was, to say, you're important, I want to hear your ideas. How about God made you? Isn't that what God's people should do? You go out this week, you've got a lot of appointments on the calendar, I know you do, but you also have a lot of unexpected appointments that are gonna come your way. And all those conversations and all your sphere of influence is the mindset for the Christian, how do I show myself off? Or is it, wait a second, I'm here for a reason. In the providence of God, might I think of them before myself? It's a positive move, a positive move towards others. And who models this better than Jesus. Jesus, by the very fact, the eternal Son of God coming to exist in a full human nature, dying that bloody death on the cross for us. Is there a better illustration in all the universe of what it means to think about others? And this is why in that famous passage of Philippians just before that famous hymn, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is precisely what Jesus did and precisely what his followers did. So church family, in a time where there is a narcissism epidemic, which by the way, I was at a conference last week, there's a certain profession that's most inclined to narcissism. 
clergy. Um, so we live in a time where there's a narcissism epidemic, a time of self-esteem, and you are special. And how do I get out of this situation? What's best for me? That God's people, because we're in that large framework of what God's doing in eternity, that we're freed up from that, and that in all of our interactions, I can posture myself in such a way to say, how do I model the Lord Jesus to this person? And I think because of where we find ourselves, there here is yet again a wonderful opportunity to be the people of God who've been reconciled through him, through Christ. So the men who now uh, will help serve the communion and the men who are leaders in the church, if you would make your way to the back, I'm going to pray and then I'll give instructions for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this word about exaltation, self-exaltation and humility that when we puff out our chests and ground ourselves in our own accomplishments, that we know that famous line, pride goeth before the fall, that we're going to come crashing down because there's nothing really there. Alternatively, Lord, help us to humble ourselves underneath your mighty hand, as Peter says. If we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that you'll raise us up. We know you oppose the proud, but exalt the humble. And so help us, Lord, to, to get there as it grow us in this area. We recognize we work from the inside out. It's both who we are and what we do. And in what we do, may we be grounded in your biblical narrative, but also others-minded, and even how uh, in our body language and in our words and in our conduct. So we thank you for this word, for the completed work of Jesus, the demonstration of Jesus. Help this sink in. May we have fruitful discussions and activities in light of it, for Christ's sake. Amen.